Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. PACMED is an acronym you'll hear quite often in the next 30 minutes. It stands for the Pennsylvania Coordinated Medication Assisted Treatment Program, which is administered through the Pennsylvania Department of Health. I have two guests with me today, one being Laura Fassbender, Executive Advisor in the Office of the Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Health, the second being Dr. Max Crowley, Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Studies and the Director of the Evidence Impact Collaborative. I want to thank you both for being with us today. If we want to just start with uh, some introductions for our listeners, how about uh, Laura, could you start? Yeah, thank you, Mike. I'm glad to be here and get to talk about PACMAT today. Uh, so as you mentioned, my name is Laura Fassbender. I'm an executive advisor here at the Department of Health uh, to the Secretary of Health. And in this role, one of the key programs that I have the privilege of working on is the Pennsylvania Coordinated Medication Assisted Treatment Program, uh, which is a very unique program here in Pennsylvania that expands access to medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder and helps us to get providers throughout the Commonwealth uh, trained and comfortable with prescribing life-saving MAT. So thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. And Max? Uh, thank you, Michael. Yeah. So I'm the director of the Evidence Impact Collaborative, and um, my role uh, here at Penn State uh, is I'm both a professor, or associate professor in human development family studies, as Michael mentioned, but I also oversee a variety of different um, studies and programs that we operate here out of the, the EIC, the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. Um, many of those in include a focus particularly on substance misuse and um, as of late, of, uh, how we address the ongoing opioid uh, epidemic in this country. Excellent. Again, thank you both for being here today, uh, well, remotely uh, in this, this modern life we live. Um, my first question, just kind of start things off for our listeners. Uh, Laura, could you describe the, the genesis, uh, some of the structure and overall goals of PACMAT? Again, the, the Pennsylvania Coordinated Medication Assisted Treatment Program, uh, really from your perspective sitting in the, the Department of Health. Uh, I'm really interested in, in kind of any particular challenges that you encountered um, in, in really getting this kind of gargantuan effort off the ground. Sure. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, so this program was really the brainchild of our previous Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine. And Dr. Rachel Levine and her uh, number two, our previous Executive Deputy Secretary, Sarah Botang, the two of them spent uh, about a year, they say, traveling the state in a Dodge caravan, uh, listening to providers in the community uh, people who are living with a substance use disorder, family members of people who have been lost to substance use disorder. And really, they did a lot of this on the work or on the ground conversations about what is the pro what is the real problem here and how do we fix it? And this was during a time when our opioid crisis in America and Pennsylvania was absolutely peaking with thousands of deaths per year and really um, not a robust infrastructure to support the amount of prevention and treatment uh, and really recovery efforts that needed to happen. And so uh, as Dr. Levine and Sarah were doing that traveling and really listening across the state, what they had heard from 
uh, providers was that there wasn't enough people uh, who were prescribing medication-assisted treatment, which we know is the gold standard for opioid use disorder. And those who were able to get their DEA waiver and prescribe were not necessarily comfortable enough with treating uh, the, the addiction that was in patients. And so because of that, they really looked around and saw what other states were doing. And so they looked at work in Vermont and Rhode Island and other states and saw the efficacy of hub and spoke models and recognizing that Pennsylvania is an incredibly geographically diverse state, thought this model could be something that worked uh, well in Pennsylvania. And so this model really started out, I think, as a conversation in that Dodge Caravan and eventually transferred over to a sophisticated napkin. Uh, and then uh, magically through uh, the funding and commitment from SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, we received funding to invest in this program. And so that investment has really been a federal and state and private partnership. And through that, we've been able to uh, issue grant dollars to health systems across the state who are already uh, treating patients for their high blood pressure or for um, their routine pregnancy care and their migraines. And we asked those patients to really start treating the whole person. And we explained this concept that we're not asking you to take on a new population of people. We're asking you to treat the addiction that your current uh, patient is dealing with as well. And so we asked that that uh, addiction and opioid use disorder be treated the way that any other disease is. And we have found that um, through that type of messaging, we're able to break down barriers and stigma. And we have successfully been able to train and recruit and expand the network significantly over the years. We've experienced tremendous success in the program with getting um, patients connected to medication-assisted treatment and providers comfortably prescribing. With that being said, this did not come without challenges. I would say that uh, our key challenges are really focused into two buckets, uh, one with stigma, which still exists, uh, but we have made progress, but much more needs to be done, and the other with uh, public health infrastructure and the lack of um, funding and um, a carve out for behavioral health and really trying to navigate how to find sustainability in the billing models and payments for the program. Uh, but we have uh, found some innovative solutions around both of those. We've really worked uh, to raise awareness and education about uh, addiction and opioid use disorder and the benefits of MAT. And we also have learned a lot about um, investments and ways to continue to support this important initiative. We know that it is actually um, a life-saving initiative, but really a cost-saving initiative as well. And so uh, there have been challenges, but overall it's been a program that we are universally proud of. It has worked really well. Uh, the main mission and the vision of the program is simple. Uh, really, the mission is to expand access to medication-assisted treatment through a hub and spoke model throughout Pennsylvania. And we have done that, and we continue uh, to expand that. And the vision, which we have still work to do here, but as a state where regardless of where you live, you have access to high-quality, evidence-based medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. And so uh, we've sought out to 
um, made strides towards that vision, as I said, through a hub and spoke model. So at the center of the hub is a centralized addiction specialist led team that really is the center and the expert um, of the program. And then they recruit spoke sites and they provide uh, direct support, technical assistance, guidance, leadership to their spokes. And then those uh, hub members and those expert addiction medicine providers or clinicians, they're able to help the smaller spoke sites, uh, which is really a benefit to how Pennsylvania is geographically to get the treatment into the community and into the providers' offices that they're already going to. So these uh, physicians, perhaps at a large health system or at a large hub, they're able to consult with uh, these smaller practice physicians on new patients or complex patients, able to help with case management. If there's a significant needs among a patient, the patient can uh, go between the hub and the spoke site. And then really they work together collaboratively to um, collect data and develop metrics to track their success along the way and then adapt as they go. And the spokes, uh, we started out the program by defining them as primary care practices who provide the medication-assisted treatment in their community while being supported by the hub. And that support is really a key uh, backbone of the program. Uh, this, the spokes are also responsible for coordinating patient counseling and managing that whole person care, the overall health of the patient. So we're not asking to set up another methadone clinic, which of course there is value in that, but we're really asking to integrate this treatment into primary care service lines. So as I said, we just spoke, we began defining that as a primary care site, uh, but over time that has evolved uh, beyond traditional lines of primary care into places like pain management specialist, urgent care management specialist, urgent care providers, emergency departments, drug treatment courts, uh, mental health providers, community organizations. And we're really excited about that. Uh, we've seen that uh, and we believe that part of the success of the program is really attributed to the flexibility that's been allowed uh, among sites and among the different programs throughout the state. So we've been able to see this type of um, creative integration and that has worked really well so far. Thank you so much, Laura. That's really, a uh, really remarkable um, and comprehensive uh, rundown of the structure and goals of a really complex program that's helping so many people in, in Pennsylvania uh, in really a dynamic and, and a changing environment. Um, part of that um, changing environment um, led you all at the Department of Health to really try to think about how to uh, measure and study this program. Um, so I'd like to bring Dr. Crowley in here to, to talk a little bit about uh, the, the technical assistance uh, project that uh, the Evidence Impact Collaborative um, started on uh, last year. Um, Max, could you just kind of introduce to us what the, the technical assistance project related to PACMAT uh, looked like and some of the process and details uh, from, from your vantage point um, in, in the academy um, and you know, some of the, the approach, uh, some of the scientific aims Thank you, Michael, um, and thank you, Laura. It was very nice to hear once again, sort of your description of all of the sort of genesis as well as the the good work of PacMat. So, um, we came to, to PacMat as as many uh, academic researchers often do, where 
we were not um, overly familiar actually with the PacMap model at first. Um, we'd heard good things about it from um, providers in the state, and we'd certainly heard it spoken about in a variety of different settings across PA government. But um, you know, at the time, we really didn't understand um, the depth as well as the reach that the model had already kind of taken root in Pennsylvania. We had the opportunity to come from it from an independent sort of viewpoint. And in particular, along with my co-leads, uh, Joel Siegel, an assistant professor of health policy here at Penn State, as um, Penn State University Park, as well as Glenn Sterner, a uh, assistant professor at Penn State Abington, we were able to kind of bring a, a diverse perspective and diverse background. So um, Joel's background is in health policy, mine is in human development and public finance, Glenn's is in criminology. To understand the opioid epidemic in, in really all of its different forms requires sort of this interdisciplinary um, kind of view, view and the bringing of different theories and methodologies. And we really got to express that in, um, with the PACMAP work. And we were so excited about the partnership with the Department of Health. Um, they were so supportive of the work from the get-go. So kind of diving into what our technical assistance project entailed was really characterizing and understanding what PACMAT looked like on the ground, right? And so really, as, as Laura uh, alluded in terms of the, the story of how PACMAT came to be, you know, it, it evolved through this really formative work that the secretary and her colleagues were doing and, um, and then was sort of sketched out on, you know, a napkin as all good ideas start out as. And we had the opportunity of working with the Department of Health to really elucidate and operationalize um, what the model um, kind of looked like in the real world, right? Um, and it's amazing to see how close these sort of idealized, you know, original ideas of what the model could be and then how it actually was being implemented there was, there was such a tight connection, and it really speaks to the investment of time and energy from leadership, as well as the buy-in that was able to be achieved um, through uh, industry and, and other folks, stakeholders around the state. So the technical assistance project is probably best characterized as a mixed methods project, and we, that's a term we often use in research settings to talk about both the qualitative, the narrative kind of, you know, information, holistic information that you can learn about a phenomena, or in this case, the PACMAT model, as well as a quant quantitative work, where we actually did data analysis, both working with data that the um, Department of Health really opened their books to us to, um, to, to kind of look inside and, and sort of kick the tires of the PACMAT model, as well as bringing um, uh, objective data from other sources, um, both from uh, other public sources, as well as from actually industry. And so this was a, a really exciting work because it allowed us to think both holistically about the underlying narrative and approach the work qualitatively, as well as quantify what we were seeing on the ground. So um, and all of this happening in a highly interdisciplinary context with the singular goal of how do we address sort of the opioid epidemic. And um, Laura spoke so nicely about the, the kind of intent and the goals as it relates to access. And that was a huge focus of our work was we wanted to characterize what PACMAT was, but we also wanted to understand, was it achieving that sort of really important proximal goal of 
how do we how do we support and provide access to high quality um, medication assisted treatment, which is time and time again through a number of different clinical trials demonstrated its value. So it's really about getting you know getting supporting providers to get this sort of these treatments into place, and then supporting the patient population to be able to receive them. So as you can see, there were many different components to the work, and um, it involved speaking with key stakeholders, both inside government and out, um, as well as a, a variety of exciting opportunities, at least for us um, in, in academia, around looking at the quantitative data. So briefly, because I think we'll get the opportunity to get into this in other parts of the conversation today, um, we, what we found was that the, the model was, as I mentioned before, kind of um, uncharacteristically being systematically implemented over a variety of, of settings and stakeholders in a really consistent manner. Um, you don't see that every day, especially from, you know, kind of organically grown uh, efforts that, you know, states often bring online, which are about responding to the needs in front of them often. But what we found is that the model was was really, um, you know, systematically being implemented. And I think much of that is attributable to the secretary and her background as a as not only a clinician, but also a scientist. And so it was nice to kind of come behind someone who clearly had been thinking about, you know, not just today, but the future of this work. So what we found um, in particular was uh, not only that it was implemented consistently um, in the same way, you know, to meet the to meet patients' needs and, and the needs of the providers, but the providers themselves were really enthusiastic about what um, PacMet was was offering them. And in particular, as as Michael uh, you mentioned before, and Laura you 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 discuss the coordination is so key, right? How do we kind of coordinate and build that capacity locally within communities, but also making sure that there's the supervision to ensure that kind of high quality care is happening? And it, so once again, we were pleasantly surprised um, through our interviews to see this sort of positive take. And, you know, the Department of Health um, was not involved in who we talked to. They basically opened the doors. And so we talked to lots of folks. Um, you know, we did also find opportunities for growth for the model. Um, you know, as as uh, I think everyone knows, the opioid epidemic continues across this country and has been worsened by COVID. And so there's, you know, there are many opportunities, not, you know, in terms of, of course, resources, which are always scarce, but also in terms of, you know, the excitement that um, existing providers who were using the PACMAP model had for new um, PACMAT uh, users to come on board because they really characterize themselves as community of practice in their adoption of that work. So again, like we, we were able to capture this sort of holistic perspective, but in, in addition to that, some of our quantitative work also revealed more, more objectively what it was actually happening on the ground. And um, what we were excited to see is, you know, the, the, the amount of access that was being provided was was really tremendous, um, you know, so hundreds of new doctors, you know, being supported and wavered um, through ASAM and some of the other um, key, key investments that the state was making, but also then patients, numerous patients, particularly in areas of the state that had otherwise, you know, really not had access, um, being able to receive the, the PacMap model. And so, you know, and, and this sort of occurring every month, right, thousands, uh, you know, of, of new patients, which is really important and really, really kind of particularly serving Pennsylvania, 
which is a large rural population where access to care can be so difficult. Um, further, I mentioned that we had the opportunity to, to use um, different industry data that was totally separate from government um, in, in that work, and in particular, um, through a data, a data partnership with Icubia, um, previously Quintiles, we were able to look at local pharmaceutical um, prescriptions, the filling of those prescriptions, and particularly as it related to the types of prescriptions that are needed to deliver MAT in a high quality fashion. And what we saw was um, that indeed, you know, that in the areas where PacMet was operating versus the areas where it wasn't, we were seeing, you know, the, the, the life-saving supports through these drugs being offered to patients at a higher rate. And that was really nice to see because this was totally separate, you know, from anything that the state had collected. This was totally kind of um, industry data that we were able to mine. And, you know, again, sort of having that objective triangulation was hugely important. That's, that's a, an, an excellent uh, rundown on, on a very complex project uh, utilizing a variety of different uh, of data sets and, and sources. So it's, uh, it, it goes to show the, the value of diversity um, in, in uh, the, the research team as well uh, from interdisciplinary orientation. Um, I, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit here. Um, and my next question uh, is, is for you, Laura. Um, obviously, the, uh, the Department of Health has a, a, a wide menu of services and, and challenges in front of them uh, as we sit here um, in the uh, the midst of a, uh, a global pandemic. Could you, like, could you orient us to how PACMAT really is situated in the Commonwealth's grand strategy for, for substance abuse prevention and treatment and the larger, the larger ecosystem there, um, as well as uh, the, the Wolf administration writ large in terms of their uh, policy agenda uh, and imperatives. Uh, from, from our uh, work with this, this project, we we certainly know that the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs and the Department of Human Services play uh, significant and, and different roles in this, um, as well as the federal government. From kind of an intergovernmental perspective um, and, and kind of a horizontal perspective, how could you give us a little orientation there? So the opioid crisis is and needs to be an all-hands-on-deck approach. There's really no other way to respond to such a colossal epidemic than to have all hands on deck. And so we've learned through a public health framework about the social determinants of health and that if we want to improve public health outcomes, we can do all the public health uh, work that we want education, uh, but it also has larger implications on society and on communities. So because of that, um, the governor recognized this and he signed a 60-day disaster declaration in January of 29, or 2018. And the purpose of this disaster declaration was to bolster resources to combat the crisis. And so since then, it's now 2021, that disaster declaration has continued to be renewed every two months, and it still really is a critical component of our response. Through that declaration, uh, it promulgated the Opioid Command Center. And so if you are not familiar with the Opioid Command Center, it has been a tremendous effort in Pennsylvania. It is a group of people from 17 different state agencies and stakeholders from the community who meet every Monday to discuss opioid-related data, programmatic updates, tools to address the crisis, 
any challenges and barriers. And then during that time, we all really put our heads together and figured out how can we overcome these challenges. And so we've bucketed the response to the opioid crisis into three uh, key categories, which is prevention, rescue, and treatment. And so, of course, PACMAP falls into that treatment bucket, which is absolutely critical. Uh, but we know that those prevention efforts are absolutely key to make sure that uh, we save people from uh, ever dealing with an opioid crisis or eventually needing to use this uh, life-saving MAT. And so in the prevention vein, there was a number of initiatives uh, that the Wolf administration has led, and those all uh, continue to pro propel forward. So some of those include prescribing guidelines. We have, at this point, uh, well over 10, I think maybe 13 prescribing guidelines for different types of scenarios in medicine. So prescribing guidelines for sickle cell disease or how to prescribe, uh, guide, uh, how to prescribe an opioid to somebody who does have uh, opioid use disorder or pain management guidelines for people with opioid use disorder. And so that type of education has been a really a key pillar of our response. We've also worked to integrate addiction medicine and medication-assisted treatment for prescribing practices into the medical school curriculums. And then another absolutely foundational prevention effort has been the prescription drug monitoring program. Uh, we call that the PDMP. And we saw uh, from the implementation of the PDMP uh, to when it was in full swing and years down the line, from that initial change, tremendous success because we were able to um, show other providers if a patient was receiving um, a medication from multiple uh, facilities if they were doctor shopping or if they clearly needed help. We were able to demonstrate that to providers. And then if there are providers there um, who weren't prescribing opioids judiciously, we were able to know who those providers were. And so through that effort, we've had tremendous success from preventing opioid use disorder from happening in the first place. And so those efforts continue on. Uh, most of these efforts are still very active, and uh, there are a number of other prevention uh, efforts are some of our key elements that all tie in with the program as well. Uh, that second bucket I mentioned was the rescue. And so we've done a lot of work to increase access to naloxone. Uh, naloxone is uh, the medication that you can provide when somebody is having an overdose or a suspected overdose, and essentially brings back life to the individual, and it is a very easy tool to use. And so we've really made it our mission in this administration to make naloxone as widely available as possible. So through this administration, we've had um, police become equipped with naloxone, park rangers become equipped with naloxone, schools become equipped with naloxone, and then the general public really having naloxone available to them. And that has been through the Secretary of Health uh, and now the Physician General's standing order to naloxone. And so we know that has really been another pillar to our response. Uh, in the treatment vein, what we're talking about today, PACMAT, has really been a key effort. Uh, but PACMAT is not the only effort in the administration's response to this crisis. And so We've had a number of other efforts. We have uh, launched addiction medicine fellowships to get young professionals into the addiction medicine uh, field. We've also had MAT summits where we've trained hundreds of providers and at once 
uh, so that they have their DEA waiver to prescribe MAT. And we also have a really robust network of centers of excellence throughout the state who are doing the same type um, of treatment and making medication-assisted treatment more accessible in their communities. Certainly seems to be a a Herculean effort across uh, all levels of government and uh, very much a priority of the Wolf administration. It's it's especially pressing as we uh, experience this uh, epidemic within a pandemic, of course, um, that is really uh, making uh, conditions so much worse for so many people. Um, one thought about the, the PACMAT program overall is the conception of it as a, a potential model for implementation elsewhere. Um, we've thought about this before, we've talked about it, and it's really um, you know, a, a, a testament to the investment that's been put into it already uh, in its design. Um, I want to talk about um, some of the features of the program, um, as well as some of the demographics or, or attributes of Pennsylvania, really, that either strengthen or weaken the proposition of uh, features of this program or a similar program being implemented uh, in other states uh, or even on the national level. Um, what features are beneficial to encouraging broader adoption? Um, and you know, are there are there areas that might need to be modified. Michael, it's a it's a really great question. Um, the PacMap model is is well positioned for it sort of being exported, if you will, to other states. Pennsylvania is such a great place for testing and um, and evaluating different types of kind of coordinated and behavioral supports that engage communities because it is so diverse in many ways with its two large urban urban areas sort of anchoring both sides of the state and then it's large rural populations in central Pennsylvania. Um, the opportunities you know, in particular are, are surround the role and flexibility of the PACMAP model to engage in a variety of settings with a variety of, of providers and then reach out and reach in, if you will, into to different communities is what we saw. In particular, um, through Glenn Sterner's social network analysis that he conducted, of the, um, of the hub and spoke models, what we saw is those that were able to develop, you know, increasingly dense sort of networks um, where they had many spokes and they developed them in a sustainable fashion. Those seem to be the ones that had, you know, the most reach and most touch across the state. And so um, support the, supporting the maturity of those hubs and spokes seems really important. Further, you know, um, something that I think Laura can speak to is the trust that we heard from the providers through our stakeholder interviews in that they were partners on this work, as well as the partnerships that many of the providers expressed around um, being able to work with their colleagues at at other providers, really a a kind of culture of collaboration and communities of practice as opposed to, um, you know, competition. So I think those were key, but Laura may have more to add here. Yeah, Max, I agree completely with your thoughts there. I think the most unique thing about the program is the collaboration that it has built. We have 11 health systems who are all truly competitors across the state in one room and all sharing their secrets about the success of the program, the pitfalls of their programs, and really in this open conversation because once everyone starts talking, that's when that's where the power is. Really, that's when you learn about the shared challenges or 
a challenge that someone else in the room has already gone through six months ago. And then you can apply uh, that same strategy or talk to the same person to learn how they got through it or who helped them get through it. And so that has been an absolutely key component of the success. I, I think, unfortunately, we've had the realization that there is enough patients to go around here. So we're not competing for a specialty uh, service to be providing. We're all united beyond or behind one mission. And there's plenty of patients, unfortunately, and tragically to go around. And so I think that somewhat removes the barriers to collaboration there because we know that this is a universal issue. And just how we've said that it required all hands on deck uh, from a state agency perspective, it really re uh, relied on all hands on deck from the health system perspective. And that's exactly what we've gotten. We have uh, very open conversations in that group and they have been so helpful. And it's really unique to hear uh, from month to month, the programs share the updates. And then oftentimes it's just a dialogue back and forth between the programs hearing about um, ways to overcome that challenge. I think that has been a key success of the program and something that's unique to the program. I also think what allowed the program to be adoptable by so many different sites, and as Max said, replicable, is really allowing the sites to craft their own path. Uh, we handed over essentially the dollars and told the sites we're here to support you, uh, but this is your work to lead and to be the expert in your community in. And we found that transferring over that decision-making about how the program on the ground would operate to the programs was tremendously valuable. And it ultimately resulted in a system-wide change within their large health systems. And so that has been a key success of the program. And I think without the flexibility that um, we enabled them to have and the ability to innovate on their own, we would not have been in the place that we are today. Fascinating. And I, you know, really key to uh, collaboration is is kind of institutional knowledge as well. Uh, I think about all the various players, uh, public and private, and industry, um, academic, and been a piece of this. I I want to think about what changing and transition means for for programs like these. So we all know um, that, of course, Dr. Levine will be uh, pending Senate approval. Our new Assistant Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration which is very exciting, really proud of, of uh, Pennsylvania and, and uh, Pennsylvania is very proud of her. It, that does lead to questions about what does the future hold for, for some of her legacy here in the Commonwealth, if you think of PACMAT as a signature program. Laura, you had thoughts on um, you know, what transitions uh, to new roles and they mean for programs and how do we really uh, seek to reduce some of the inefficiencies that are related to the loss of institutional knowledge? As uh, you know, for those in public service, um, having been in it in myself before, you 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 know, there, there's a lot of rotation and change. So I don't know if you had any thoughts on that and and kind of thoughts about the future of PacMat. Yeah, uh, well, I like to say, and maybe it's for my piece that we all will continue to be working with uh, Secretary Levine. Uh, or Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services, Levine, just from a further ways away, because we real, 
really will still be working on public health together. But that being said, there still is a commitment, a strong commitment here from the Department of Health and from the WOOF administration to continue to invest in the PACMAP program and expand it beyond what it is right now. And so through working with our Penn State colleagues here, we've learned a tremendous about opportunities for growth within the program, but also what has been successful and what would lead it to be more successful. And so we're excited to apply that knowledge uh, with Secretary Levine leaving. I don't think this is in any way the end of an era. It's just continuing this work and building upon what she has started here. And so we're excited to continue to support this program. We have received SAMHSA dollars to uh, administer for year three. So we'll continue to invest in the program and expand it beyond what it is now. We will hope that the dollars will continue to flow in. We think one silver lining of the pandemic may be revealing the importance of having a public health infrastructure to respond to both pandemics and epidemics and whether it be opioid use disorder or the COVID-19 pandemic, there really is a critical need to invest in public health uh, to prevent other more serious medical conditions from eventually happening and having a larger impact negatively on, this, on society as a whole. So I personally remain hopeful that we will continue to have more investment and support in public health in the future. And that will look like supporting and look like supporting programs like PACMAP. Thank you. I really want to you know, think about how we can find ways to, to better foster collaboration between our government partners like yourself, Laura, and, and the academic community. Any thoughts come to mind? Any efficiencies we could, we could seek or things we'd redo? Uh, if, we had a, if we had a redo, we had a mulligan on this? I don't know. Uh, Max, you want to chime in on that, please? Well, we've had the opportunity at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative to engage with and partner with a variety of different government organizations at the federal, state, and local level. This project has been a particularly you know, gratifying one, and I think that for us is, is often an exemplar we point to for the types of relationships we like to have with government partners. Really, for us, this was about co-producing evidence, you know, we as the, the researchers were kind of given free reign to kind of open the books and talk to who we wanted to talk to. And at every step of the way, we found the department really receptive to our, you know, our feedback, the identification of strengths and weaknesses and opportunities. And that's really a joy for from a scientific standpoint, because we get to have the conversation. It wasn't about sort of trying to to frame it in the right way or something like that. And so I think that for you know, others looking to, to work with and enter into these sort of research policy type partnerships, I, I couldn't highly, more highly recommend it for the sake of the science, but I also can, can say from the experience here that it's possible to have really productive, open and, and exciting kind of partnerships such as this. I echo all of your thoughts, Max. I know here at the department, the work that we do really relies on research or it prompts research, but we aren't researchers here. And so we heavily rely or always need to rely on the expertise of academia and really taking your expertise as advisement here to the work that we do. And we have done that through this program. And I hope that 
the work and the model and the relationship that we've built through this program can be applied uh, to programs more broadly throughout the department and the administration. And I think it uh, has in some ways already. And I also would just say that having the conversation is the most important part. I know all of us have different areas of expertise and whether it be listening to community members or from people who are experiencing addiction, people who are researching the outcomes of addiction, people who are prescribing MIT. It's really just critical to hear what the collective experience is so that we can respond accordingly. And so I cannot say enough positive remarks about the relationship that we've had uh, working with the Penn State team here to really uh, expose ways that the program can grow, but also not just rely on our anecdotal evidence of how the program has been successful, really putting evidence behind it, looking at the pharmacy data, interviewing providers who participate in the program without us there. It's really shown us the program for what it is. And I think doing that is one, a great way to foster accountability, but really to foster more productivity. So I think this has been a great partnership and I would certainly just encourage people to have the conversation and to reach out and to ensure that we're fostering an environment that there are opportunities to have conversations like these ones. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I do want to give each of you the opportunity for any closing thoughts, anything, uh, anyone like to chime in? Thanks, Mike. I would just like to close by expressing my gratitude really for the 11 programs, whether currently receiving support from the department to do this work, or if they've already found ways to sustain their programs, this work, I think, I know truly does save lives. And it is not always easy, but it is always necessary. So I'm thankful uh, to all of the providers or community health workers or peer recovery specialists or program managers who participate in PACMAT. And then also so grateful for the support of uh, the governor, our previous secretary, Dr. Rachel Levine, or Sarah Botang, for our new secretary of health, uh, Secretary Beam. Just the support that we've received has allowed us to do this. And without that, none of, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. So I'm very thankful for that. that that's wonderful. And I just want to say thank you to, to the state, as well as my co-leads, uh, Joel and Glenn. You know, this was an exciting project, doing important work. And so really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you both so much for your time today and for a really excellent conversation on a, a really crucial program you both put, put a lot of work into. With that, we can conclude a conversation with Laura Fassbender, Executive Advisor in the Office of the Secretary at the Pennsylvania Department of Health, as well as Max Crowley, Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Studies and Director of the Evidenced Impact Collaborative. Thank you. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, a Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.